Well, let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. I am not starting a new series on Revelation, don't worry. But Revelation 1 does have a number of parallels with John chapter 1. Revelation 1. We actually, believe it or not, have finished John chapter 1 in 14 sermons. And if you think that I'm slow... Jonathan Edwards preached 30 sermons on one verse in Isaiah. So there. But I've decided not to launch into John 2 quite yet since we have arrived at the Christmas season and we will be away from John for a couple weeks here. So I want to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Last week I had lunch with the international class over in the fellowship hall And there were three UBC families represented at my table. And all three of those families are currently coping with a spouse who has a debilitating sickness. Here's a question. If Jesus is the Christ, as we discovered two weeks ago, if Jesus is the Son of Man resurrected with authority over all nations, as we discovered last week, Why does he allow suffering, sickness, and disease to afflict his creation? Why does he allow sickness to afflict his people? Why did several of you lose family members to COVID-19? Why were you hospitalized with COVID-19? Why are some of you dealing with the debilitating long-term side effects of COVID-19 with no prospects of recovery? This is the reality where we live. Why does the world seem out of control? What's going on in Russia, Ukraine, China, Venezuela? What's going on in our country from local school boards all the way up to the halls of Congress? Let's combine these two questions. On Monday, I had lunch with one of my advisees. He is from Myanmar. His country has descended into political chaos with blood running in the streets. My student also lost his father down in Atlanta to COVID-19 within the last year. And after his father passed away, his brother-in-law also passed away from COVID-19. So, who's running the world? The fact is, friends, we are not experiencing anything new. The world has been broken since the fall, and there's always been bad news. Jesus said there will always be wars and rumors of war. Nothing new. Global pandemics have been around since the dawn of history. In fact, many of them far, far more severe than COVID-19. This is not the first time we've seen a global pandemic, not by any means. And would you believe that arguments over vaccines and inoculations have actually divided Christians for centuries? It's true. In the 17th century, a smallpox epidemic burned through colonial New England. Many interpreted the epidemic as a sign that the world was coming to an end. 
Cotton Mather, a leading New England preacher, logged into his journal, April 21st, 1721, the grievous calamity of the smallpox has now entered the town. Well, Mather owned a slave named Onesimus. He'd been brought over from Africa. And Onesimus explained how African doctors had developed inoculation against smallpox. Taking a small thorn, doctors would take a tiny speck of pus from an infected victim with a mild case of smallpox, smallpox, and they would prick healthy people with that small bit of pus, essentially revving up their immune systems to combat the disease. Quite an innovative idea. And Mather actually became an outspoken champion of the smallpox inoculation, which is essentially like a vaccine. But of course, the practice, as you might imagine, became instantly polarized and politically divided in the climate of New England. Sound familiar? I just have to laugh at all this stuff going on today because I'm like, we've seen this forever now. Uh, Martin Luther wrote of an epidemic spreading in Germany and whether a Christian should cover his face or whether we should block the entrances to the town when the epidemic comes through. When the Spanish flu burned through the world in 1918, churches fiercely divided over whether to meet indoors or outdoors or not at all. So again, I kind of laugh at what's going on today because it just reminds me of what's been going on for centuries. And I'm not taking sides, all right? My point is the world has always been full of trouble, and there never has been a consensus of opinion, even among Christians, about how to solve our problems. But what I want to know is this. This is really crucial. Can you embrace the realities of a confused and broken world while simultaneously embracing a biblical theology of Christ's rule over all the nations? Can you hold all that together in your mind? All right? That's what this sermon today is all about. Holding that all together. We live in a broken world and Christ rules the nations So can you leave here this morning, all right, holding all that together between your ears, all right? A generation ago, there were many dispensational theologians who simply avoided the dilemma that I'm talking about by appealing to what has been called the postponement of the kingdom theory. And I know of no theologian still teaching this view, but since it was widely popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible, you do find it still lurking around in churches. And I want to make sure that we're not thinking that way. The postponement view claims that Jesus offered a first century political kingdom to the Jews. The Jews rejected it, so Jesus went to his cross instead. And he postponed his kingdom to the future millennium. It's down the road. Jesus will not rule the nations until the future millennium. The kingdom has been postponed. But the postponement theory contradicts numerous texts, not to mention that it wrongly reduces the cross to plan B. Jesus claimed all authority over heaven and earth when he resurrected. The New Testament affirms Psalm 2 and God's decree that his son would rule all the nations with a rod of iron was fulfilled at the resurrection. Paul told the Romans, 
The resurrection was a declaration of Jesus' authority, His rule. Paul told the Corinthians, the resurrected Jesus must reign, must continue to reign until He has subdued all of His enemies. And Paul told the Colossians, you are transferred into the kingdom when you believe. Friends, a sovereign God does not postpone His plans. So then how do we embrace the realities of our broken world while maintaining a biblical theology of Christ's reign? Can we do this? Let's review briefly. Here are two truths that we established in our last two sermons. Both are associated with Jesus' name in John chapter 1. First of all, Jesus was declared to be the Christ, the Messiah, the King, at His resurrection. Peter tells us God made Jesus Christ when He resurrected Him from the grave. And that means that every time that we breathe out the name Jesus Christ, we are actually acknowledging that God made Jesus the Messiah, the King, the Ruler, the Sovereign of the nations. So when you use the term Jesus Christ, you are acknowledging His rule. If you believe in the postponement, all right, then don't use the name Jesus Christ. It doesn't apply until the millennium. Second, on trial, Jesus told the Jews... From now on, the Son of Man would come with the clouds of heaven and sit on His throne. From now on, Daniel 7 was fulfilled at the resurrection. Forevermore now, the angels of God would ascend and descend, remember this from last week, on a person, the King, Jesus, the ruling Son of Man. That's John 1 and verse 51. All right, now I won't develop this, but let me give you one more little piece of information here. The resurrection actually ushered in what the New Testament refers to as, are you ready for this? The last days. The last days. Both Peter at Pentecost and Hebrews 1 established this truth. When the New Testament refers to the last days, It doesn't refer merely to our future out there, something beyond us. The last days begin with the resurrection. This often throws people off theologically. The last days begin with the resurrection. Hebrews 1 really clarifies that. The resurrection then launched the eschaton. Eschaton is the word from which we get our word eschatology, which is the study of the future. But the future, the study of the future, the eschaton actually begins with Easter. It begins with the resurrection. Biblically speaking, we are living in the last days. People sometimes ask me, well, do you think we're living in the last days? Of course we are. We have been for 2,000 years now. Yes, I do believe that. And I kind of look at you like, you're weird. No, I'm just being biblical. All right, so here's my question then. How do we live in these last days? Now that Jesus has been appointed king over all nations. Well, everything in the New Testament, beyond the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, actually answers that question for us. 
Okay, now follow this very carefully. This may be like an aha moment for many of you. It was for me when I first discovered this. All right, so follow this very carefully. The Jews expected the Messiah, the Christ, would come at the end of the world. But Jesus showed up in the middle of history, and he died unexpectedly. They didn't realize the Messiah was also the suffering servant, same guy. And because they didn't realize he was going to die, Jesus also rose unexpectedly. Even the disciples failed to understand the resurrection, and even though Jesus predicted it three times, they still didn't get it until it happened. Like, oh, he's coming back to life. And friends, thirdly, Jesus disappeared unexpectedly into the clouds to sit on a heavenly throne. Well, I thought the Messiah comes at the end of history. Actually, he came in the middle of human history. Well, Messiah did indeed come, and now he's gone up with the clouds, and he sits up there on a throne. Okay, so now what? We have to rethink the Messiah's mission. So the book of Acts then tells us the disciples went everywhere preaching the death and resurrection not just of Jesus, but of Jesus Christ. Remember at Pentecost, this is when they begin calling him Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, he is the King, and we're going to preach it now because the resurrection established it. They argued in their sermons that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. All right? And they went everywhere preaching that message. Then you come to the epistles, and the epistles explain why the Messiah died and why he rose again. Romans, for instance, explain what he was doing in terms of our salvation when the Messiah died. All right? The epistles also explain how we are supposed to live in light of the truth of a resurrected Messiah. They explain to us how we are supposed to live, guess what, in the last days while we wait for Christ to return in the end of the world. So Paul tells Timothy, for instance, in 2 Timothy 3, exactly what those last days are going to look like. He says they're going to be days full of difficulty and trouble and turmoil. And we often read that and we think, oh, that's still the future. No, Paul was actually talking about Timothy's day and all of church history. We've always been living in the last days ever since the resurrection, and we've always been living in days full of trouble. All right? And that brings us then to the final book of the New Testament canon, and it tells us now the rest of the story of the Messiah. How does his story end? That's how you have to read Revelation. Since the Messiah came in the middle of human history and not at the end, now we've got to sort of rethink the ending. That's Revelation. Everybody got it? And now you want me to do a whole series on Revelation. Now, we'll do that sometime, maybe. I need about five, ten more years to really get ready for this. It's, it's daunting. All right. John will take that long, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I heard that, Norman. All right. Okay. Well, friends, Revelation probably is the most misunderstood book in all the Bible. And frankly, if you don't get the first verse correct, the first verse, you are going to go off the rails theologically. You will end up in all kinds of wild, irresponsible, anti-Christian areas and ideas. Look at, look at the first five words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Do you know the Greek term translated revelation? I know Trent does. All right. Do you know the Greek term translated revelation? Anyone know, actually? Anyone know the term? Anyone? Steve, of course, knows. All right. All right. It's the term apocalypse. Did you know this? It's the term apocalypse. This is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, the term apocalypse has been hijacked by popular culture with its zombie movies and dystopian literature and cults and conspiracy theories and end times paranoia. In fact, we recognize now a whole genre of apocalyptic literature, and most of it is really, really negative. In fact, I was on the news yesterday, and I was looking at one of the accounts of the tornado that just spun its way through Kentucky, and the headline said something with, I forget what it was, but something with the word apocalypse. This is apocalyptic. All right, when we think of destruction, we think apocalypse, and when we think apocalypse, we think utter destruction. In fact, historian Matthew Sutton in his book, American Apocalypse, demonstrates that nearly every tragic event in our country over the last century has been interpreted by Christians as a sign of the apocalypse. I had somebody stand right here within the last year and tell me, well, COVID-19, it's clearly a sign that we're in the end. It's all over now. Well, I don't know, right? I mean, these diseases have been going on for a very, very long time, and COVID-19 is mild compared to a lot of them, all right? But here's the situation. Biblical apocalypse, all right? Biblical apocalypse, while it does indeed embrace evil in the world, there's no doubt about that. While it does indeed embrace judgment and destruction, is nevertheless an encouraging a positive, a liberating genre. It's a wonderful genre of literature to read. Biblical apocalypse just pulls back the veil in all of our misery, and it shows us Jesus Christ ruling the nations with a rod of iron. If you read the Revelation, you'll notice it all begins with the throne. That's where everything begins with God's throne because Jesus is, in fact, reigning. Everything comes as a decree from that throne. And it's very encouraging in the end, although there is certainly destruction in the book of Revelation. All right? And friends, I'll just say this also. Revelation is actually not a revelation of the Antichrist. The term Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation. I'll not explain the beast at this moment. But actually, the term Antichrist does not actually show up in Revelation. That term is used exclusively in First and Second John, and it refers to people in the plural who already lived in the first century who denied the incarnation. That's what an Antichrist is. It's anybody who denies the incarnation. They are Antichrist according to John, all right? And we certainly have Antichrist living among us today, and we always will, all right? All that to say, Revelation is the apocalypse, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now keep reading. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness, notice these words, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And notice those four words in verse 2, the word of God. 
And a guess is the Greek term translated word. It's the term logos, which shows up in John chapter 1 and verse 1. So think of it this way. John's gospel is a revelation of the logos in the days of his humiliation and crucifixion. And John writes again, Revelation is a revelation of the logos in the days of his exaltation and coronation. It's about the same person. And where did that exaltation begin? Well, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Now observe the connection between the name Jesus Christ, which we begin preaching at Pentecost, there's a connection between Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Jesus, friends, was not the first person in human history to resurrect. Jesus raised people from the dead before his own resurrection, but Lazarus died again. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. He's the first person to resurrect with his new creation body, never to die again. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. That's why he is called the firstborn of the dead. And notice that the firstborn of the dead is Jesus Christ. He's the ruler now. And that's why he is called here also the ruler of kings on earth. And John is not referring to a future rule of Jesus. It's not what's going on here. Rather, ruler of the kings on earth is Jesus' present title. This is his title right now. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I insisted last week that your understanding of the future must be rooted in the resurrection, right? Or you're, you're just going to go off the rails when you get to eschatology or the study of the end. You've, you've, you've got to root the future in the past, in the resurrection, Now keep reading. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom. That's current. That's present. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, John speaks of a present reality. We have already been freed from our sins through his blood. That is true. Friends, your biggest problem has already been solved. Do you realize that? Your biggest problem has already been solved. Your biggest problem is not the disease that you're carrying around in your body right now. That is not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not the occupant of the White House. Your biggest problem is not our national future. It's not the possibility of a bear market. It's not inflation. Your biggest problem has already been solved. Your biggest problem is your sin. And Christians have already been freed by the atonement that Christ made on Calvary. So friends, part of figuring out how to live in a chaotic world full of disease, war, crime, racial strife, is to indeed rejoice. Begin here. Rejoice that Jesus has already solved your biggest problem. It's already been taken care of. 
I'm afraid that just far too many evangelicals act as if their biggest problem occurred when President Trump left the White House. That's not our biggest problem. In fact, the world's largest problems just just pale into utter insignificance when you just rest in these glorious words. He has freed us from our sins by His blood. That's your problem. He solved it. Now make a little note here of verse 6, and I'll return to it. It speaks of a present reality. He has made us a kingdom. All right, The kingdom is not postponed. We are part of that kingdom. We are living in that kingdom. So how do we live in that kingdom? I'm going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. But I just remind you that Paul told the Colossians the same thing. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness down here, and He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's present reality. Now, as you read the remainder of verse 6 straight through verse 7, they ought to really remind you instantly of Daniel chapter 7. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with clouds, the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Daniel 7, of course, told us the Son of Man would come with the clouds. And we are told also in Daniel 7, He would be given everlasting dominion forever and forever. That's verse 6. But Jesus, if you recall, on trial, told us Daniel 7 will be fulfilled from now on. Jesus is coming again, but He also has been coming from now on. All right? So you have to really read Revelation in that context. We are reading about the from now on. That's what we're reading about. We're reading about the from now on. That's why he tells John, write the things you've seen and will happen and will happen after these things. It's the for now on, from now on. Jesus, friends, resurrected and he just keeps on reigning. He just keeps on coming with the clouds. He just keeps on sitting on his throne and he keeps on coming in judgment on unbelief and he keeps on coming for his saints and he just coming again at the end of the world. He just keeps on reigning. And guess what? Right here in Revelation 1, we are given a glimpse of the reigning Son of Man. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like, look at this, a Son of Man. That reminds you of Daniel 7. Clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, speaking of his judgment. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, like Niagara. His voice just overwhelms. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's the logos, the Word of God coming from His mouth. And His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now there's a great deal more going on here than I have time to get into. But would you again just notice the name, the title, Son of Man. We saw that in John 1. And His pure white hair reminds us instantly of the ancient days back in Daniel chapter 7. They are one and the same. Jesus is Yahweh. 
when John saw then this glorious image of the Son of Man, he collapsed as though dead. And Jesus told him, well, do not fear. And notice these highly significant words in verse 18. I died. The Son of Man said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's the resurrection. And Jesus adds, I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has authority over the grave. Now, do you recall from two weeks ago, right, the single time we heard anyone name Jesus, Jesus Christ, in all four Gospels. The single time we heard that name was from the mouth of Jesus on the night before he was crucified. The only time Jesus ever called himself Jesus Christ, and nobody else ever called him that until you get to Pentecost, Jesus Christ said this, I have authority over all flesh, and he calls himself Jesus Christ. The next day, he was dead. So does Jesus have authority over all flesh? Well, read the text again. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys. I have authority over death, over Hades, over the grave. John 17 was, in fact, fulfilled. Jesus is the Christ. He has been given authority over even death itself. Now, friends, we just race really quickly from, Rome, from Revelation 1 straight to the end, all right? But I, I, I go to all that trouble to really show you the connection, the delightful connection between John 1 and Revelation 1. You have the Word, the Logos, you have Jesus Christ, you have the Son of Man, you have these magnificent names that show up in both chapters. So again, John's Gospel is a revelation of the Logos in the days of his humiliation and crucifixion. Revelation, the apocalypse, is a revelation of the Logos in the days of his exaltation and coronation. That's how you have to read this book. All right, now let's turn to Revelation chapter 5, and let's just pursue momentarily Christ's exaltation. Chapters 4 and 5 take us right into the throne room of God. They give us a scene that's reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7. They describe, I think, what Jesus must have seen when he went right up at the clouds at his ascension. Well, John here sees in heaven a great throne surrounded by rainbows of beauty, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and torches of burning fire. And John also sees a great sea of glass like crystal just stretching out before the throne. He also sees living, angelic, and wonderfully diverse creatures that surround the throne, these angelic, beautiful beings. And John also looks and he sees a scroll in the right hand of God, the Ancient of Days, who sits on his throne. And that scroll, once it is opened, is the title deed to the earth. Whoever opens that scroll has absolute mastery 
over all human history. Whoever opens that scroll is sovereign over the future. But John says, no one in heaven was able to open the scroll. John says, no one on earth was able to open the scroll. No one under the earth was able to open the scroll to break open its seals. In fact, no one was even worthy to look at it. Friends, no one means no one. It means not Satan, not an Antichrist, no cabal of nefarious bankers, no world ruler, not the Illuminati, not Nimrod, not an American president. No one actually means no one. So John wept loudly because creation has no future, history has no destiny, all is lost. But wait, look at chapter 5 and verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And notice the, the verb tense of has conquered. This is already done. We're not waiting for this. He has already conquered. The line of Judah, David's son, has already conquered. He has earned the right to open that scroll. And when did he conquer? Well, keep reading verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, he's approaching the throne, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, friends, what is a lamb slain but now standing if not the resurrected lamb of God? And that resurrected lamb comes to the throne and he takes the scroll. And friends, when that lamb takes the scroll, suddenly the 24 elders, probably representing all God's people, Israel and the church, erupt with a new song. Worthy, verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And, they saw, and, and, and then, all of a sudden, there's this tremendous triumphant chorus that joins in with the 24 elders. Thousands upon thousands of angelic beings join with a loud voice. Look at verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. When did Jesus receive power? When He resurrected, all authority has been given to me. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All of heaven celebrates the resurrected Lamb, friends, who claims the title of the earth below. Think of that. All of heaven above rejoices when Jesus takes the title to the earth below. That's what Jesus meant when he resurrected and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. 
And friends, beginning with the resurrection, the church with one mighty Pentecostal voice has been calling Jesus, Jesus Christ. So again, if you are going to embrace the postponement of the kingdom, don't call Jesus, Jesus Christ. But if you're going to call him Jesus Christ, you need to rejoice that he is in fact reigning on his throne. Now, bring all of this back to the reality where we live. December 12th, 2021. Friends, is the world full of turmoil? Is there chaos in our streets? Are there tornadoes spinning destruction through villages and towns? Are you suffering? Are you still struggling with same-sex attraction? Are you losing your battle with pornography? Are you losing your battle over your tongue? Are you losing your battle with your temper? Does it still control you? Are you losing the battle with doubt? Do you confess Jesus Christ as world sovereign, but you find His power insufficient to control your own body and your own mind? And you want to just give in and give up. Friends, if Jesus rules the world, why are Christians persecuted today? Why are they martyred for their faith? Like, what's going on here since Easter? Let's take this last question and let's let it shape our answer to all the others. If Jesus rules the world, why are Christians persecuted today? Why are they martyred? Why are there more martyrs martyrs today, as many martyrs today as there have been at any time in human history? Well, let's answer that question by turning to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6. And let's notice what happens when the sovereign lamb takes the scroll... And he breaks open the fifth seal. When he shatters that seal. Revelation 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, and he's the only one that can do that. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness they had borne. John sees the martyrs. If Jesus is reigning, why are Christians dying? Good question. But notice how the martyrs never question the sovereignty of the Lamb. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. They do not question God's sovereignty. Friends, even the martyrs, Do not spin off conspiracy theories about who really rules the world. They understand He is the sovereign. We're dying. Yes, He's sovereign. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. There is absolutely no question about that. Instead of questioning Jesus' sovereignty, friends, they appeal to it. 
Next two words. How long? The question, how long, implies that Jesus can, in fact, do something about their problem. In fact, He's the only sovereign who can solve their problem. They've been disembodied. That's their problem. For the Christian, we should never question Christ's sovereignty. Don't don't ever question His sovereignty, but you may legitimately ask about His timing. It's okay. Ask about His timing. How long? How long, O Lord, am I going to suffer? How long, O Lord, until you take this temptation away completely? How long? Ask the question. The martyrs do. At this point, they're on the altar. They've already passed away. They're not sinning when they ask the question. Now read the whole question. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And what's the answer? Verse 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, friends, how long? A little longer. And why a little longer? Because Jesus the Sovereign has ordained for other believers to go through the same trial of martyrdom. There's no question He's the Sovereign, but you're going to have to wait longer because others too are going to suffer So can we really let this dialogue with the martyrs shape our responses to our own troubles? Let me make five points of application, all right? This really is, I think, and I trust, I prayerfully trust, this is is God's counsel to us and the trouble that we're experiencing. First of all, never question the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Even if you're being martyred. Friends, guard your mind from wandering off into godless doubt about who's in charge of the world. Now, for some of you, that might mean turning off the television, unsubscribing to your newsletter, refusing to download that podcast, turning off talk radio in your car. I'm not saying that you have to do that. But friends, if you cannot handle the temptation to doubt the rule of Jesus, if that temptation is just too strong for you, and it is for some of you, and often men think they're really strong and men tend to be weaker on this. If you cannot handle the temptation to doubt the rule of Jesus Christ, friends, then just get rid of the source of temptation. Be radical about it. If you're an alcoholic, I'm going to tell you, let's, let's get radical, get rid of the alcohol. If you're into pornography, I'm going to tell you, well, let's get rid of the internet. Get rid of the thing that's causing the doubt, the disbelief, the temptation. So friends, I'm not saying stop reading the news if you can handle it, but if you cannot read the news without doubting that Jesus Christ sovereignly rules the nations with a rod of iron, then stop reading the news. Better to be uninformed than theologically misinformed. And friends, just go find somebody to witness to. Don't waste your life just wallowing around in all the bad news. You do not have a special calling 
to consume all the bad news and let everyone around you know about it. We all know there's bad news out there. We don't need to know about it. Our commission as believers is to get out the good news that Jesus Christ is resurrected and he reigns. And his gospel is going forward to all the nations, right? So that's number one. Never question the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Don't do that. Number two, remember Jesus has already solved your biggest problem. Chapter 1 told us he loves us and freed us from our sins by his own blood. Friends, you were damned to a Christless eternity. And Jesus already solved that problem for you through his blood. And when you adopt that perspective, you can look at all the present problems that you're experiencing the way Paul looked at his problems in Romans chapter 8. Paul says this present suffering is a momentary light affliction in light of the glorious new creation that's coming. So Jesus, friends, has already solved your biggest problem. And that perspective leads to a third point. That is, trust Jesus' timing. When you ask how long, Jesus has every right to say, well, wait a little longer. I can heal you, but you wait a little longer. I can solve your financial difficulty, but you wait a little longer. I can resolve your work situation, but you wait a little longer. I can take away your inordinate desire, but wait a little longer. And can we just pause on that last one? Our tendency is to view a thorn in the flesh exclusively as some sort of sickness or disease. But for some, it is a desire for what God has absolutely forbidden. The Lord gives the believer the power that he needs, that she needs to resist. But friends, when you ask him to take away the thorn in the flesh permanently, just just take away that temptation for good. You have the power to resist it, that's true. But when you ask for him to take it away for good, he may say, well, wait a little longer. Friends, I have asked the Lord to remove certain temptations from my own heart. I have. And guess what? They're right there. They're still there. He says to me, wait a little longer. God, friends, never heals anyone's sin nature completely until the resurrection. Your sin nature is not going to go away. It's not going to be conquered completely until the resurrection. So what if God says, wait a little longer? And what he means by that is just wait until you get your resurrected body. Now, can you wait that long? Well, that leads to a fourth point, and it's this. Remember that Jesus Christ has sent the Holy Spirit to prepare you to live in the new creation. The same Holy Spirit who drove Jesus out there into that burning wilderness and sustained him through three blistering satanic assaults. That same Spirit, friends, has been given to you permanently through the duration of your life. And Jesus may indeed ordain trouble for you, just as God ordained trouble for Jesus. But friends, you have the same Holy Spirit indwelling you that was in Jesus And he is recreating you even now to live in the new creation. Many Christians have been deluded by the lie of Christian nationalism and the prosperity gospel into believing that the gospel is all about securing your best life now. 
That is not the gospel. Jesus comes along and he just sovereignly wrecks your plans. And then he says to you, okay, live in the Spirit. We live at the intersection between two creations. We live in the fallen creation, but friends, we already have the spirit of a new creation indwelling us. We live in the already, not yet, that I've explained on previous occasions. We live in the inaugurated eschaton. We live in the last days. And in these last days, full of trouble and bad things, all right, Jesus Christ is indeed making all things new. What that means is we are living in the middle of the largest restoration project in the universe. How about that for the gospel? Let the Spirit of Christ remodel you and recreate you and prepare you to live in the new creation. Let the Spirit gradually, if He desires, reshape your desires, your affections, your priorities. He may do it in a year. He may do it in 40 years. You may struggle with something for the duration of your life, but it's the Holy Spirit who is working, transforming you, preparing you to live in the kingdom. And with that said, how then do we live as kingdom citizens? This space that we are occupying right now, this restoration project between the resurrection and the end of the world is called the kingdom. That's the biblical term for it. We are living right now in the kingdom. How do we live in the kingdom? Well, as we prepare for communion, would you turn to Matthew chapter 5 in conclusion? Matthew chapter 5. And let's let this passage really shape our thinking about living in the kingdom. We are right now living out our lives as subjects of the king. Matthew tells us Jesus went everywhere preaching his kingdom. Well, what did that sound like? And the first example that we have is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to describe for us the characteristics of his kingdom citizens. Here's how we are supposed to live. If you'll notice in verse 3, with the beginning of the Beatitudes, we have this statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last beatitude does the same thing. Blessed are those, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This can't be talking about the millennium, right? They're persecuted even now. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The beatitudes begin and they end with the kingdom of heaven. And what Matthew's doing here, what Jesus is doing here, is using a literary device called inclusion. And it essentially means everything between the first kingdom of heaven and the last kingdom of heaven is all about the kingdom. These are the characteristics of a kingdom subject. All right? So can we just scan down through these and prepare our hearts for communion? This is what it means to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit between the resurrection and and the second coming. How do we live in a world full of turmoil, sickness, persecution, even martyrdom? How do we live when Christ says, wait a little longer? Verse 3, live humbly, poverty of spirit. Friends, humble yourself. You're not going to beat your flesh. You can't do it. 
You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You won't do it. The only way you're going to overcome your wicked heart is to get help and to submit yourself to the Word. So if we take just a moment and focus on that text, ask the Lord for poverty of spirit. Verse 4, learn how to mourn and to find comfort. Friends, it is perfectly appropriate to lament the state of the world and the state of your body and to cry out, how long, O Lord? That's the morning. And find comfort when Jesus says, wait a little longer. So maybe this morning you need to do that. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry I've been so anxious to get this solved. I'm willing to wait a little longer. Can you do that? Verse 5, live meekly. That is bringing your talents, your gifts under Christ's control. You're the sovereign. I arrange myself under you. Verse 6, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Friends, Christ will satisfy. If that's what you really want, he's going to satisfy you more than physical healing. Verse 7, be merciful. When you have experienced mercy from others in your affliction, all right, go dispense that mercy on someone else. So you're suffering right now. All right, can you think of somebody else that you might be merciful toward? Take a moment, think about that. Verse 8, pursue purity of heart. When diagnosing all the problems of the world and the problems of the church, and there's lots of them, and the faults of your brother, we're really good at that, okay? Can you seek the purity of your own heart? Let's not examine anyone else. Let's examine our own hearts this morning. Take a moment and do that. Verse 9, become a peacemaker in a world full of trouble. A peacemaker is somebody who goes about trying to restore what was lost at the fall. Restoring creation. Putting things back to rights. Bringing about shalom. In verse 10, you may live out all these beatitudes and you're persecuted. And like the souls under the altar, you are persecuted all the way unto death. If that's you, if that becomes of you, here's what you're supposed to do. Just just wait a little longer, and Jesus will make all things new.